You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Jesus and Women, presented by Julie Coleman, author, teacher, and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. Good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. We're going to be continuing this week on our series on Jesus and women, and uh, the women, some of the women that he encountered as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about the adulterous woman as recorded in John chapter 8. Um, I don't know if you would, this would ring a bell with you, but um, this was a movie <laughs> um, that came out several years ago, Les Miserables, or I think it's Les Mis is the name of the movie, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's actually being remade this year, and it's a wonderful story, and I wanted to concentrate on one part of the story just to get us going and thinking about what we're going to be looking at today in the scriptures. Um, the story is about a man named Jean Valjean which is very fun to say, so I'm really happy <laughs> I could tell his story. But um, it's, this is based on a novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, and the story takes place in 1815 in France. And Jean Valjean has just gotten out of prison. He was there 19 years. He was in prison because he stole bread to feed his starving sister and her children. So already you see that sense of injustice. And he gets released from prison, but they make him carry this yellow passport, which identifies him as a former prisoner. So even though he's paid his debt to society, he still carries the weight of that guilt around him. And when he goes to inns trying to find a place to stay, um, no innkeeper will take him because he is a prisoner. And so they, they assume, because he was a criminal, that they don't want him in their establishment. And so he ends up sleeping out in the streets. Well, eventually, this bishop comes along, and he uh, takes Jean Valjean in, and he has him come in and, and stay with him and gives him shelter and gives him food. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean goes into the bishop's storehouse and steals all of the silver, silverware, and leaves. And so he's going to continue his um, pursuit as a criminal. Well, the police catch him, and they bring him back to the bishop and put him in front and show him the silverware and says, did he steal the silverware for you? And the bishop, rather than condemning Jean Valjean, says, oh, no, that silver was a gift to him. And here, you forgot the candlesticks. And he gives him some of the silver candlesticks and said, now, don't forget your promise to use this to go and make an honest man of yourself. Well, that grace, that amazing gift that the bishop gave him that night is the turning point in Jean Valjean's life. It's the fork in the road, a bestowing of grace in spite of his guilt. It changed everything for him. Well, the story we're going to be looking at today in John chapter 8 has very similar theme. We're going to see how another sinner This one, guilty of adultery, will face her own fork in the road. Let's pray before we get started looking at this remarkable story. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of this adulterous woman caught in the very act. Her guilt was definitely something that could not be denied, and yet Jesus offered her grace and forgiveness and a chance to start over. It was truly her fork in the road. 
We ask God that you would help us examine what was said, uh, scripture behind those things, and just help us, God, to have an understanding that we haven't had before, and help us to find ways to take this passage and apply it to our hearts, that it would be a life-changing passage. God, please get me out of the way. Do your work within the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll find uh, an outline about the, the message that I'm about to give on the back of your um, bulletin that you can follow along. So there are a few questions we have to ask. I've always got questions when I look at scripture. Um, and so we want to take a look at some of the things that, uh, what was going on in this story. Well, the first thing we have to ask is, why did the religious leaders really bring the woman to Jesus? Well, the writer of the passage uh, reveals that there were dark motives afoot. Dark motives afoot. They had more on their minds than just seeing a cheating wife punished for unfaithfulness. Um, the writer reveals in 8.6, they were testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They had ulterior motives. Now, this was something that had happened before. Mark tells us about an incident in which the Pharisees and uh, scribes go to, or Herodians, go to attempt to trap Jesus by asking him a tricky question. Was it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And that may be a story that you remember. And, and the problem was that if he said, yes, it was lawful to pay taxes, that would get the Jews all upset and rising up against him. But if he said, no, it wasn't lawful, then that would get the Romans all upset and rising up against him. So no matter how he answered, it was going to be something that would trap him and enable the Pharisees and the Herodians to accuse him of a crime. Well, Jesus didn't really answer the question the way they had hoped. They, he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And so the same kind of uh, ploy was, about, was being attempted again in this passage. Um, because no matter what Jesus said, they figured that he was going to discredit himself. Well, how? Why? Because it was a catch-22 dilemma. Um, the controversial issue was punishment for adultery. In Jesus' day, Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to govern the people. But there was one thing the Sanhedrin did not have power to do, and that was to put a death sentence on someone. They were not allowed to inflict capital punishment. Rome alone had that uh, power. Well, that's what created the conflict, because you see... In Deuteronomy, it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And so, in, in Hebrew law, in, in Mosaic law, adultery was worthy of capital punishment. But in Roman law, it was not. It was not an offense that deserved capital punishment. So that was the conflict, because if he was going to say, no, she shouldn't be put to death, quoting Roman law, then the Jews would say he's, he's um, disregarding Mosaic law. And on the other hand, if he were to say, yes, she should be put to death as Mosaic law prescribes, then the Romans would be able to accuse him of insurrection. So no matter how he answered, he's going to be pulled into conflict, either with the Romans or the Jews. There's another evidence of this dark... Uh, motives that they had is they were very selective in their indictment. Because if you remember the verse that was just up there, in Mosaic law, both the man and the women in an illicit sexual relationship were equally guilty and both should be put to death. 
Well, they claimed to have caught her in the very act. Therefore, the guy was present. Yet the only person that's being dragged to the temple and being condemned to die was her. So they were really only upholding half of the law. And that, that um, absence of that woman's partner shows that double standard and pretty much indicates that um, there was disingenuousness on the part of her accusers. So it was a trick thing. And, oh, I'm sorry, this is the verse. So why then, and I'm sure this was plain as a nose in your face to Jesus, if they had those kind of ulterior motives, why did he bother to answer their question at all? Well, knowing that Jesus was concerned for every person on this earth, you can understand why. Um, he was concerned, and he dealt with both parties, the accusers and the accusee, pretty equally uh, in, in, in some ways. And the writer shows this in the structure of the story. Both times, both encounters, first with the Pharisees and then with the adulterous woman, both times start with Jesus stooping to write in the sand. Then, for both cases, he stands up to address them. And his words to each of them, both cases, are a pronouncement on their sin. And he offers, both cases, a chance to turn away from their sin and repent. So when the writer does this, it shows us that Jesus has that equal concern for both parties. He intended to use this incident for every single person that was in that courtyard, everyone that was involved. Well, how is he going to use it? Well, first, we have the woman. Had Jesus refused to answer, in their anger, the mob might have turned on the woman and stoned her. It happened later on, a couple years later, to Stephen, where they, they stoned Stephen um, for preaching Christ. And so it has happened. It, it was going to happen again. It probably had happened in the past. So his intervention very likely saved her life. And up until Jesus spoke, the woman's um, treatment by the religious leaders had been abominable. They were using her as an object. They were dragging her in. They didn't care about her. Her fate, her life didn't matter at all. They just wanted to use them, her for their malicious purposes. And Jesus was going to set out to show her a different way, God's way. Now realize, the Old Testament makes it clear that God judges sin. He's holy. But there was a huge difference in what the judgment that they wanted to hand out versus the judgment that God wanted to hand it out. They were treating her as an object, using her for their purposes. God, every time judgment is sent out and warned about, it's always offered with a chance of repentance and restoration. We just finished studying the prophet Hosea um, in our Bible study on Monday nights, and we were just amazed to see interspersed with all of these threats and all of these promises of complete destruction and annihilation and terrible things were going to happen because of the sin of the people. Every time God would come back and say, that's going to happen to you, but if you repent, these things will happen. Always a chance of repentance, always a chance of being restored. And that's how God is. First Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that he is not willing that any should perish. He's offering that um, chance of redemption always. God's way was a, a different kind of judgment. And then let's look at the Pharisees. Well, what did they need to know? They had no goal of redemption. There was nothing constructive because they had decided that she was a sinner and they were not. 
Bad idea. The Pharisees needed to be shown God's way as well because they regarded themselves as holy. They followed all the rules. They did everything the law said. And therefore, they were totally righteous and had a right to stand in judgment of others. That was nothing short of delusional because they desperately needed a reality check themselves. They had no goal of redemption in their judgment, and they desperately needed a reality check. So what did the woman and the Pharisee share? Well, they weren't all that different from each other. All of them were guilty of sin in their lives. All of them needed forgiveness. All needed a personal relationship with God. They were all on board the same sinking ship. So Jesus took the opportunity to urge each one of them toward redemption. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That was his answer. So why did the Pharisees react the way they did to Jesus' answer? He who is without sin. I found some interesting things about that because what Jesus was telling the Pharisees was nothing they didn't already know and have memorized. He was taking his answer straight out of Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 17.17 says this, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. In other words, if you were a witness to somebody's crime that was worthy of capital punishment, you and you witnessed to them and about them and that caused their conviction, then you were the one to pick up the first stone and cast it. Well, there was a lot of responsibility in that. Your words would likely lead to somebody's death, and if they gave anything but honest testimony, you'd have blood on your hands. So that was one way that um, the Mosaic Law played into what Jesus said. And the other was this. Deuteronomy also commands, if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brother. If the Pharisees had done anything to entrap the woman, if they had been disingenuous in any way, then they were putting their own lives at risk. Now, there was another writing that the Pharisees would have thought of when Jesus gave this command, he's who without sin cast the first stone. And that was actually in apocryphal literature. It's a little add-on to the book of Daniel, Daniel 13. <laughs> Our Bibles only go to chapter 12, but um, there are two translations of the Bible. One was in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, and then the other is a second translation out of the Greek, and in the Greek Bible, this is there. It's in the Catholic Bible, Daniel 13. It's a story of a, a woman named Susanna, and Susanna's the wife of a very wealthy man in Babylon, and she's very beautiful, and two of the elders in the village decide they want her. So she goes off to take a bath in the garden, strange place to take a bath, but I guess it works, and anyway, she's taking her bath, and the elders sneak up and approach her, and they proposition her. They want her to have sex with them. And she says, no. And they said, well, if you don't do this thing, then we're going to tell everyone that you were, we found you having an affair with a younger man. And she, she is just in agony over this thing. And she finally says, you know what? I'm not going to place my fate in your hands. I'm going to keep my fate in God's hands. So therefore, I'm going to obey the law of God. Do not commit adultery. And then let the rest fall where it may. Well, they were good to their word. They started, she started screaming for help, and while she screamed for help, the elders were there, and then 
they, when the servants came running, they said that they had found her with this younger man and she was committing adultery. So the next day, this has this big trial at her home. And so she, she's, she's pleading for her life. And the elders, who are you know, people that were well-respected in the community, um, give their testimony that they caught her in adultery and the death sentence falls upon her. But before the uh, actual punishment comes, Daniel takes the two elders separately aside and he questions them about the details of what happened. And there's discrepancy in their stories because it's hard to be perfectly consistent when you're telling a lie. And so he goes back, Daniel goes back to the council and shares what he knows. And instead of the woman, Susanna, being put to death, the two witnesses were put to death. Now, the reason I tell you this story is this was an apocryphal literature, and so the Pharisees would have been very well aware of this story and would have known it well. So that could be another thing that might have played into this idea of being a false witness and then being guilty and risking the, the punishment that you were asking for this accused. The other thing, and this is total conjecture, but I just wanted to think about it for a minute. What was Jesus writing in the sand? Don't you wonder that? Well, the word is grapho in Greek, that writing, and so he wasn't drawing pictures. He was writing actual letters. So what was he writing? I would like to know. Well, there's a couple of possibilities I thought of or read about. Exodus 23, maybe he was writing a verse. He certainly had a lot of that memorized. He said, you shall not give a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now, if you can imagine the Pharisees peering over his shoulder as he wrote, and if he wrote that out, you have to start thinking about what you're doing. Another possibility is Proverbs 19.19. 19. A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will perish. Any of the, either of those verses, or I'm sure there are others, something that he wrote struck something within the Pharisees. Now, it's all complete conjecture. We, never, we do not know. Never, the Bible never tells us what, what he wrote. But in any event, knowing the story of Samson, knowing the scriptures, Jesus, the words of the Pharisees would at the least have struck fear into their hearts, that they would be ready to testify about a setup against this woman. Any false motive, any false statement could possibly backfire should that dishonesty come to light. So it's very likely that the need for self-preservation won over their need to convict or get Jesus convicted of a crime. So they cut bait and they left. And the woman and Jesus stood alone in the courtyard, all of her accusers having been silenced. Then Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Now, have you ever tried to stop sinning? How'd that work out for you? Not so well, right? <laughs> It's impossible. It's impossible. So why would he say something like that to her? Well, there's a couple of things that we have to understand. First is guilt is a universal condition. Before she met Jesus, the woman's concept of God and his standards most likely involved a list of do's and don'ts because that's how the Pharisees taught the law. It was a list of do's and don'ts. It was, um, they were the teachers of the law. Their brand of Judaism was what all the people believed and practiced in that day. But unfortunately, they believed in performing to the letter of the law, but the law never reached down into their hearts. It never affected who they were. It never affected how they viewed themselves when it came with God. 
They might have been meticulous in following procedure, but their pious acts could not erase their guilt. They had shown their guilt by walking away. Now, the woman had just seen these Pharisees, the great righteous ones, admit to the fact that they were sinful. Well, that must have been a revelation to her. She was the sinner. They were the righteous ones. And now Jesus has just put them all on equal playing ground. So she must have started to understand sin in a very new light. It wasn't eliminated by righteous acts. Everyone, religious leader and adulterous woman alike, is equally guilty. So she saw that righteousness could not be earned by pious behavior. And then Jesus, and, and Romans um, confirms that for us later on, there is none righteous, not even one. Forgiveness could only come, she discovered, by grace. By grace. Jesus moved her to that next understanding. Facing him alone in the courtyard, she was without hope of restoration. She was guilty. She could do nothing to pay for her restitution of sin, nothing that would earn forgiveness. If even the Pharisees, the righteous ones, were guilty, then what hope did she have? So his next statement must have been completely unexpected. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. I do not condemn you either. She stood at a fork in the road. She was being offered grace, forgiveness. She was being offered a chance to start over. Abandon the old. Begin again on the new. Live under a covering forgiveness and grace and mercy. It was her fork in the road, and Jesus was gently urging her by this statement to move in that direction. Go and sin no more. Well, what does this encounter mean for us today? It's always the question when we have scripture. We don't want it just to be head knowledge. We want it to be something that reaches our hearts and changes us that God can use for that transformation process. Well, at the moment of salvation, the moment we receive grace, we get more than just eternal life, which is pretty good already. <laughs> but God initiates a remarkable transformation within us, and our very nature starts being changed into something completely different. Paul calls it a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Well, what exactly has changed? What does that new creation mean? Because I still look like, well, I'm older now but, and heavier, but I used to, I still look like Julie that was, you know, around in 1980. What's exactly changed about me? What's changed about you? Well, that new nature is really, a better way of putting it is a new capability. We are, we are changed because before Christ, we had no inherent ability to have a relationship with God. And now he changes it. Our, host our minds were hostile to him, the Bible says. We could not understand spiritual things. We didn't even have that capability. Our hearts were darkened, and we loved the dark rather than the light. And I could go on and on. We were dead in our trespasses. It's just verses all over the Bible that talk about what our old nature was like. But when we accept Christ, then we have a new nature. And it opens up a brand new horizon, a new capability, because now we have a potential to have an intimate relationship with God. Our new nature makes it possible to understand spiritual truth, 
through the Holy Spirit living in us, we were given more than the light of knowledge. We were flooded with the love of God. No longer are we hostile to him. So that new potential even extends to our win. It affects our ability to choose between right and wrong. We used to be helpless under the power of sin, not have any chance of being able to fight against it. But now we are not powerless any longer. In short, God has equipped us with everything we need to live within his will. But it remains a battle because that new nature is in us. At the same time, the old nature still exists. And so you've got that battle between the two. It's going to be a struggle until we leave the old nature behind for good. When we uh, abandon our bodies and our spirits go to heaven with God in eternity. But be encouraged because while the struggle continues, after we've made the decision to follow Christ, our direction has definitely changed. He's at work in us to complete the transformation that he started when he gave us that new nature. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, to perfection, until the day of Jesus Christ. So we're being transformed day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. But it's a subtle transformation, something we might not notice on a daily basis. I'm holding a piece of, of uh, petrified wood. I've never had a chance to look at it up close, but it looks exactly like wood. What happened is, uh, many years ago, and I won't start talking about how many, but anyway, there was a long time ago, wood fell into places where it was covered up with mud almost immediately. And instead of decomposing right away, the pressure from the earth that was up on top of it kept it from decomposing. It started decomposing very slowly. And what happened was, uh, as the water was moving through and osmosis was taking place, molecule by molecule of the live wood of the organic material got replaced by the minerals that were in, was in the water, the inorganic material. So now you have uh, molecule by molecule, this piece of wood was transformed from organic wood into stone. And you can see what the stone is like on this side. Very slow transformation, but it was happening definitely. It's kind of the same with us and how God is transforming us. He's getting, he's giving us that new nature and then he transforms us bit by bit, molecule by molecule, if you want to call it that, into the image of Jesus Christ. Less of us, more of him. And that transformation process is going on. It's, it was our fork in the road. He's expanding our actual potential into reality. And it's all due thanks to his grace and his work in us. He's also moving us forward. There's times in our lives as believers that we come across additional new forks further on down the road. Maybe you've had a time where you've made a terrible mistake, a choice that caused pain or heartache for you or maybe the people around you. Maybe your uh, actions made you understand just how hopeless it is for them to ever expect good from you. Maybe it's some kind of a grievous sin, maybe a failed relationship, maybe some kind of a devastating change in your circumstances. Maybe you've just realized on a deeper level just how bad you really are. <laughs> Those kinds of experiences can stall us out in our journey down that road and, and, and paralyze us. But we're not traveling the road alone. And Jesus has been with us step by step. And as we face that new fork, he's gently going to guide us in the direction we need to go. A couple of weeks ago, Bill spoke on um, Peter. 
He did the same for one of his disciples, Peter. He was reeling from abysmal failure. Despite all his good intentions, even if all the others deny you, Lord, I will not deny you, he said. And a few hours later, three times in a row, Peter denies knowing Christ. Huge failure. And so he was there and, and, and facing Jesus and knowing how could Jesus trust him with any kingdom work when he'd been such a jerk. <laughs> and so he was stopped. He was paralyzed. Well, Jesus came alongside him and he gave him three chances to reaffirm his commitment. If you remember, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. Three times, one for every denial. Jesus gave him a chance to reaffirm. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't stand there and say, well, Peter, next time, what do you think you're going to do? What have you learned from this experience, Peter? He doesn't bother. What does he do? He points Peter forward, moving him on that fork in the road. And he tells him, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Jesus was helping Peter put his failure behind him and move forward on the work to build kingdom building. You know, he's interested in doing the same for us. He's that same personal savior that he was to the adulterous woman standing shivering in the courtyard. He knows where we are and where we need to go, and his desire is to see us transformed, changed from the inside out. So he offers us that change and direction, and his path is ours to choose. Don't miss the opportunities of the forks in the road. Like Jean Valjean, the adulterous woman, and sometimes us, a grace, an offer of forgiveness, and an offer of mercy can continue to move you in the right direction. Paul wrote this in Philippians. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Go. Sin no more. God has removed our condemnation. He's removed our guilt. He's actively transforming us on a daily basis. So we need to start looking ahead because it's time to move forward. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.